Welcome to the Aerospace for All podcast. I'm Jamie Robb, the founder at Aerospace for All. On this podcast, I interview those in the aerospace industry and discover insights gained through years of experience, showing you different routes into the sector and what you can actually do when you get there. My guest today is Mitch Hunter-Scullion, CEO of the Asteroid Mining Corporation. Here's a brief highlight from our conversation. The benefits of space mining aren't just going to benefit me and my pals. I want the benefits in space mining to benefit everybody on this planet. We strongly believe that sort of asteroids in particular are one of the greatest opportunities in human history for vast wealth creation and sort of sustainable benefits and sustainable development for our planet. In the following episode, Mitch and I talked about his alternative route into the space sector, why platinum from asteroids is such a valuable resource and why Mitch prefers to work in the middle of the night. Before we start, I'd like to announce a collaboration between Aerospace for All and Astro Agency to bring you our Space Networking Mastermind. Very quickly, this is a seven-week programme for 15 to 18-year-olds interested in a space career, giving you the skills to get to that career earlier. Head to aerospaceforall.com forward slash mastermind to find out more and apply. And with that, I'll let Mitch introduce himself. Hi everyone, I'm Mitch Hunter-Skillion. I'm the CEO and founder of the Asteroid Mining Corporation, which is one of the UK's pioneering space resources businesses. So how did you initially get into space? Um, so I actually studied international relations and history at university. Um, and at A-levels, I studied English literature, French and history, well, early modern history. But I also studied government and politics at AS level. So I'm very much not from a scientific background. I'm not from a, a traditional space background, if you want. Um, I basically realised when I was about kind of 20, 18, 18, 19, 20, around about that age, I realised that I wanted to um, work in the space industry. It was kind of, I, I had planned and sort of going into sort of commercial aviation and then decided that £100,000 to learn how to be an airline pilot with no guarantee of a job probably wasn't the best investment. Um, so decided to go and sort of take a look at space industry, which is a really fast growing and dynamic industry. Um, had a look at sort of companies like Lockheed Martin and I was most interested in like space mining and sort of space resources. Um, so I looked at companies like Planetary Resources and just various other sort of organisations. Um, Deep Space Industries was another one, but they were all American. And that was kind of one of the, the main difficulties, because obviously, if you're not a, a US citizen, it's very difficult to work in sort of the space industry in America. Um, so basically, I kind of looked at the opportunities in Europe. There weren't many. Um, I mean, I could have moved to Luxembourg, but again, no real guarantee of a job. Um, so I wrote my dissertation on asteroid mining um, for my international relations degree and for my history degree I wrote it on sort of the history of the space race and it was basically around that point that I realised that if you really want to sort of go and do something um, you kind of have to start today, you have to like really just hit the ground running um, and then I realised that there wasn't any sort of British companies working in space mining and I thought well this is my opportunity. Um, so I founded a company in 2016 while I was still in my university bedroom. And yeah, coming up for five years later, we're, uh, we're now about to go multinational and open our first office in Japan. So yeah, it's very exciting. From having sort of no technical background in terms of engineering or science, you've been, because everything has been business and international relations. How have you gone about hiring people and finding people that do have those skills and because obviously you need that input to actually get the technical stuff done so how how did you find that process um well to be honest i think because with asteroid mining corporation it's such a 
a bold concept that for the most part people came to me um so the first sort of four or five people who joined the company after me um they were all approached me i didn't sort of i didn't go looking for them and i suppose if i was a, a young person looking to sort of get my foot in the door in the space industry um i would especially sort of recommend you go and sort of send a a quick email off, see if you can find the CEO or the, the head of HR for a, a, a small space startup and just send them an email, send them a letter because you don't really know. They might be in a position where sort of they might need a mechanical engineer, they might need someone to do their social media. Um, it really doesn't hurt to just sort of fire off a, a cold email because to be honest, that's how I've hired most of the people in the company. And yeah, it's, it can be a very, very good way to, at least if you're not gonna sort of get a job out of it, it puts you on their on their database, it puts you on their watch list. Um, and it means that you ultimately sort of turn around and you have a kind of an understanding of who's out there, who's interested and like what kind of what kind of skills that are gonna be available, if not this year, maybe next year or the year after, or sort of three years down the line. So yeah, I would definitely recommend sort of cold emails. Also just sort of going to events. Um, there's lots of space events about and they can be sort of as plain as just pure astronomy evenings and they can go right up to sort of your UK students, um, yeah, UK SEDS, um, like main event, which I've spoken at in the past and people have came up and spoke to me and given internships and things like that as a result of that. Um, even the, the UK Space Design Competition is another great one, which is particularly aimed at sort of 16 to 18 year olds um, and even younger as well. So I've sort of met one of my current interns who's probably going to join the company at the um, UK Space Design Competition this year and um, yeah looks like he's probably going to get a job out of it so uh, I would definitely recommend you just go um, if you have an interest and you see that sort of a company that you are interested in is going to be somewhere go and try and have a chat with them. People in the space industry are usually quite friendly quite sort of happy to chat about space, always enthusiastic about space. <laughs> so if you go chat about space, chat about sort of entry into the, into the industry, they'll be more than happy to come and sort of help you out. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of just putting yourself out there and, and speaking to people. In the first kind of couple of years when you were setting up Asteroid Mining Corporation, what were you actually doing and what, what did your time consist of, especially considering you were trying to balance that with doing your degree as well? Yeah, so I mean, for the first kind of six months of the company. I was just sort of finishing university. I was kind of trying to get my, my dissertation together. So I basically considered my dissertation as the genesis of the company. So I kind of looked at it as when, well, this is a kind of founding document, a founding kind of set of principles for one, what the company should look like and two, what the kind of the ultimate goal of the company should be. So I kind of, I've, I've focused most of my time on that. And I would say definitely for the first kind of six months, six months to even as far as a year I didn't really know what I was doing and that's not a bad thing that's not something you should be afraid of because especially if you're going to set up your own company um, and especially if it's something quite innovative and new you're not going to know what you're doing you're not going to be there every day and go all right this is fine I know exactly what I'm doing because it's just it's not not feasible there's going to be the nature of innovation is kind of blindly stumbling into the future and sort of having a stab at things and if it fails then ah, don't worry about it too much. You learn lessons from that and then you go back and ultimately you refine your, your concepts and your processes. Don't be afraid of sort of not really knowing what you're doing. And I think the difference between sort of a, an engineering background or a STEM background compared to sort of my slightly unorthodox background would be that I, from the very outset, was quite consciously aware that I wouldn't 
always be knowing, I wouldn't be an expert in, in spacecraft engineering, I wouldn't be an expert in sort of satellite design and things like this. Um, but that hadn't stopped me from sort of putting together a, a spacecraft design, it hadn't stopped me from putting together a, a satellite mission proposal. Um, so after the kind of the first six months, um, after that first six month period, I kind of started to professionalise slightly, I started to have an understanding of what the um, what, what it was to be doing. And I suppose those first six months I was in university, I was, um, I was studying for my degree, but some of my weekends I spent drinking, I had a good time, I went to parties. Um, you have to have that balance and especially sort of, it's, it's very easy to go and sort of find a, a very, very difficult balance sometimes where you can be so focused and wrapped up in your work that you get burnt out and ultimately don't really, don't really see the wood through the trees, as it were. Um, but after that, I kind of got to the point where I started understanding what I was doing. I had a bit of a roadmap about where I was and what I needed to do three months down the line, six months down the line, a year down the line, etc., etc. And I sort of built that over the space of a few months and then I started working on it. So um, I realised that if you're going to sort of go and look at prospecting asteroids, if you're going to go and mine asteroids, which was sort of the, the main goal of the company, um, then you have to prospect them, you have to understand what they were. And from that very, very big idea of, okay, we want to mine asteroids, I started breaking it down and it was okay. So we want to mine asteroids, but we don't know enough about asteroids collectively to be able to turn in and say that this asteroid here is the one we want to mine. So that means that we have to prospect asteroids and then to get from prospecting asteroids to mining asteroids, you then have to go to the asteroid and explore those resources. And then isn't that just the traditional mining industry techniques? And then from that very, very big, broad concept, it started breaking down and breaking down till it got to the point of, okay, if we want to prospect asteroids, we need to build a satellite because telescopes aren't very good for us because they're very expensive. And, um, and then from breaking it down and breaking it down, it got to the point where we realized that, okay, what can we do now? What can we do cheaply? What can we do that will sort of generate traction and move us forward? And kind of as a result of that, um, we started designing the, um, well, I started designing the Asteroid Prospecting Satellite One mission. And basically, I was, uh, from that broad concept, it was like, what can we do? We can have a, a paper proposal for a, for a mission and then well, I was quite fortunate, so about a year or nine months into the company being founded, um, there was a, a UK space agency competition for looking for young entrepreneurs called the Satellite Competition. Um, and basically, I, I was looking at sort of one, finding young entrepreneurs or the next generation of young British space entrepreneurs, but also looking at sort of technologies that would make life on Earth better by using satellite technology. So I basically turned around and essentially put together the um, Asteroid Prospecting Satellite 1 mission proposal and with the Asteroid Prospecting Satellite 1 mission proposal I, I discovered that if you use um, spectra or spectroscopes to, to look at asteroids then that would be sort of something of interest. So I kind of went from there and went okay so I put together a, a, a kind of rough, rough proposal for this competition. Didn't win but ultimately came I think second or third so that was enough to get me a, a ticket to the UK Space Conference. Um, and then having looked in the UK Space Conference website, I realised there was another competition where you could get a, what was called a pitch to the prime slot. And with this pitch to the prime slot, what you could get was essentially the opportunity to stand in front of the heads of the UK Space Agency, European Space Agency, the bosses of all the major space companies in, in 
the UK and Europe, um, and many, many other sort of assembled space people. And yeah, just stand up and talk about the company for five minutes, talk about our goals and our ambitions. So less than, or just over a year after founding the company, I found myself in front of the space industry, well and truly. And that was really the turning point of, okay, this is just a kind of a mad idea, sort of startup coming out of university to actually there might be something in this. And then sort of started speaking to local development agencies, people like Scottish Enterprise, um, like Liverpool Vision and um, the Northern Space Consortium all reached out to me and managed to sort of start understanding what was what was available. Um, I got myself a mentor and the unbelievably generous and beneficial Bob Morris of the Northern Space Consortium, who was just the most helpful person at getting things started. And as a result of talking to him, I got an introduction to Liverpool John Mouth University and the Astrophysics Research Institute there. And I think that the first meeting I had with them was a bit nervous and they were a bit like, okay, what's this? But they realised that there was something in the idea that if you can use a satellite to prospect asteroids and have an understanding, then that would benefit them from a scientific perspective, but it would also benefit us from a commercial perspective. And then at that point, that's when things really started to go because it was like, okay, let's let's apply to do a, a joint feasibility study. And we did so and we got the funding, about £9,000 to do that. And yeah, it was at that point where all of a sudden we had a, a doctor of engineering working for us for about six months to to put together this um, this feasibility study into a, an asteroid prospecting satellite and at that stage we realized that yeah there was actually something in this and from there it's kind of it's grown and it's grown and ultimately we're sort of now at a point where where we're looking at sort of expanding internationally and um, sort of should hopefully have our, our satellite in space within the next sort of two to three years so it's it's not it's not always the easiest but if you're to sort of want a, a breakdown of what my average day looks like um i mean a lot of the time i, I don't really wake up until about half past 10 but as, as a kind of a side effect of that if i if i wake up later in the afternoon in the morning or sometimes even in the afternoon um ah, the eternal student in me somewhere <laughs> uh, it means that i will probably be working late at night just to kind of catch up so uh, i find that i tend to work sort of better under under the night sky so that kind of slot between about 11 o'clock at night and about four in the morning is when I would consider my my prime working time to be. So I would probably try to do most of my work at that point. And also if you're now, now that we're sort of looking at being an international business, that ties up with the morning in Japan, that catches the kind of the early evening in the US as well. So it means that you're sort of catching more people, you can have more phone calls and it just, um, it's beneficial to sort of start thinking that 24 hour global time zone clock because um, it just means that the amount of people you can work with and the amount of partners and collaborators that you can sort of bring into your project expands dramatically. I, I wouldn't say that I, I work consistently, I would say that I work constantly. <laughs> um, so I kind of, I, I work constantly but at a very low level, um, try not to be very stressed out but when a deadline comes up it will be a case of I will probably spend three days without much sleep and just really smash the smash the application forms and get everything in just before the deadline so in many ways it's it's quite like being a university student yeah yeah and how have you found the process of going kind of straight from university without any other jobs into being sort of the ceo of a company and running a company um it, it wasn't always the easiest transition um I think, especially for the first year or two, people just thought I was a bit mad. <laughs> um, and to be fair, I probably was a bit mad, but ugh, it's one of those things, isn't it? But I think as I've went from sort of 
very early stage to okay we're now sort of quite an internationally respected business um it's definitely a build up in capabilities but it's a learning process um and i think with any startup or any job it's a learning process you could go and be a a graduate analyst for goldman sachs and you're going to be learning you're going to be no you're every job you walk into is going to be a, a learning process there's going to be sort of difficulties and challenges in that but it doesn't mean that you can't do it. It just means that sort of sometimes people might not take you as seriously as you'd like. But thankfully, we were quite fortunate in that I managed to get quite a bit of press attention quite early on. So I was only, I think, about 22. I was only about 18 months into the business um, when BBC News um, ran a story on us that went viral. And from there, that went that brought massive attention and lots and lots of people who probably thought I was a bit mad before that turned out and went, actually, it's probably something in this. Maybe he's not mad. Um, so yeah, that was that was probably the point where I think I had already sort of started professionalising and taking things seriously by that point. Um, but I think at that point, other people started to take it seriously and professionalise as well. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, I suppose the hardest thing to do is to convince yourself and to change your own mind. Um, if you can change your own mind that something is possible, then you can change other people's minds just easier than that. Yeah, no, definitely that, that makes sense. And then just in general, look into the future of your, your company and what's going to happen with it. What are your plans and projections? So our goal for the next probably two to three years would be to launch the Asteroid Prospecting Satellite 1 and to have that in orbit, um, sort of starting to prospect asteroids. Um, within the next sort of, 18 months we're looking to have our first two international offices established um so we're looking at sort of setting up an office in luxembourg and another sort of laboratory in japan and and then ultimately what we're looking to do is to kind of start building a a, a sort of a bit of an international network of um space resources companies partners and just generally start to start to bring the industry together because it's, I think with space resources in particular, it's a very, very difficult industry because um, it's so new, it's so modern and um, a lot of the time it's quite sort of prone to hyperbole, it's prone to a bit of sensationalism, especially in the press. Um, I'm, I'm sure sort of if you've read anything about asteroid mining, you've seen the, the quintillions and quadrillion sort of uh, valuations of asteroids that are thrown about. We kind of like to take a step back from that and say, okay, there are asteroids that are very valuable out there, but you can't really extract that whole value. Um, so what we like to do is we like to look at the asteroids which are sort of economically valuable and extractable, and that tends to be your asteroids of a kind of one kilometre diameter, um, or sort of round about that area. And then obviously your metallic asteroids are the ones which contain precious metals, and they're the ones that we're most interested in. So it's quite, um, what we're doing over the next sort of two to three years is identifying basically a, a list of all these asteroids in the solar system um or over the next sort of five to six years i should say um, we'll be identifying all these asteroids in the solar system and then just essentially grouping them into a into a list to say okay these asteroids here we know they are we know where they are we know what they're made of we know the size we know the speeds that are traveling through space at we know their location um and their orbital dynamics um so let's go and let's go and look at them let's let's ideally let's find the one which is the most viable candidate for mining um so hopefully within the next kind of five years or so we will have that that asteroid um solidified and then as soon as we have that asteroid which we can turn around and empirically say this is the one that we want to mine 
then we'd be applying for a, an exploration license to send the spacecraft up to that asteroid and ultimately look to put some robotic probes on it and um, conduct some sort of surface samples and subsurface analysis. That exploration license, is that what prevents other people from then going and looking at the same asteroid? Because otherwise everybody can just go for the same thing and it's just whoever gets there first. Yeah, so I mean, with the sort of, with the model of exploration licenses, essentially that kind of, it's tied into safety zones. So it would be highly unsafe if you had two spacecraft operating within sort of a few hundred meters of each other, especially when you're sort of perhaps as much as a couple of hundred million miles away. Um, you've got sort of time delays with regards to signals. Um, it just makes things dangerous. And yes, yeah, it's, it's not the only what anybody wants to have sort of two spacecraft crash um, or anything like that. That's just, it, it's improbable, but it's not outside of the realms of possibility. So it's something that we want to avoid and we avoid that by sort of um, essentially an enabling license, which would grant sort of priority rights to one operator over the, um, to explore the resources of a particular asteroid. And essentially by exploring those resources and by proving those resources, that would be how you essentially get a, a legal claim to recover material from that asteroid and then have essentially the property rights to go and sell that material on Earth. So that's the that's the kind of model that we're working towards at the minute. Um, that could change depending on sort of the way the international legislation is looking. But um, at the minute, the United States with the Artemis Accords and their recent executive orders um, would seem to be suggesting that that's the kind of model which is ultimately going to be adopted, which is quite exciting and um, should be sort of really good for the industry going forward. The step from putting something into orbit around Earth to be looking at all these asteroids and working out which ones to go for and then actually sending sending a probe all the way out to an asteroid is obviously it's a huge step. So how are you going about funding that basically? So basically to get from the prospecting satellite to the exploration probe, um, ultimately that's going to require partners. Um, so we're not going to do that completely in-house. We're not going to do that completely alone. Um, by that stage, we'd be looking to have um, space agency level partners and probably uh, at least one mining company on board and essentially form a consortium. Because by having that consortium, we would essentially be in a position where we're bringing in experts from various fields, from the space agencies, from the mining companies, and we're kind of broadening the benefits as well. Um, I suppose our niche as a company is in sort of that, that knowledge base, that understanding of the resources of these asteroids, and then sort of some of the technologies required to manoeuvre about them. But that doesn't mean that we have the, the technological capacity to sort of build our own rocket and launch to an asteroid. So we need to partner with a launch provider in order to get there. We need to partner with a mining company who would probably be the ones who would pay for a lot of that mission. Um, and we'd probably partner with the space agencies because the space agency would be the one who would sort of like generate sort of scientific knowledge and understanding as a result of that mission. Um, so it's kind of a case of pulling all that together and ultimately sort of forming forming a, a group because the benefits of space mining aren't just going to sort of benefit me and my pals. Um, I want the benefits from space mining to benefit everybody on this planet. And we strongly believe that sort of asteroids in particular are one of the greatest opportunities in human history for sort of vast wealth creation, sort of sustainable benefits and sustainable development for our planet and beyond as well. So the sustainable development and an economic impetus for going into space and ultimately uh, an economic reason for putting humans 
beyond the moon. So realistically, we'd be looking to sort of bring as many partners and as collaborators, universities, space agencies, companies into that project as possible. And that ultimately loosens, lessens the burden on us as a private company as well. And it means that we don't need to, to overextend ourselves too much. Yeah, it's just kind of sharing out the responsibility and then I guess the, the benefits that I get brought back. And you were talking about how you obviously want to share the benefits with basically everyone, everyone on earth. But what would you say, apart from what the media, the media hype up about how yeah, you can make quintillions of dollars from, from asteroids, what realistically are, is it going to bring to us when you, when you successfully mine an asteroid? Well, I think the thing that we're most excited about as a company is platinum and platinum group metals. Um, not purely because they're valuable, although um, I'm sure my shareholders would be quite happy to see that one. But I, I suppose that the, the interest in platinum is more from an ecological perspective. Um, so we use platinum on Earth and sort of chemical catalysts and, and sort of like car catalysts and automobile catalysts and things like that. But it's also a, a main sort of main ingredient in electric vehicle batteries and just general sort of hydrogen catalysts as well for hydrogen cars. So at the minute, the problem is cat- like platinum so expensive because we only mine about 200 tonnes on Earth annually. Whereas on, in space, in a single one kilometre diameter asteroid of metallic composition, um, we can be looking at as much as 117,000 tonnes of platinum. So that 117,000 tonnes of platinum is more platinum than has ever been mined in the history of Earth of one single asteroid of which there could be hundreds. So that means that the price of platinum is going to come down, um, but also the amount of uses for platinum are going to go up. And suddenly things like hydrogen cars become cost effective. Because at the minute, nobody drives a hydrogen car for two reasons. One, because the infrastructure is not in place. And two, the infrastructure is not in place because they're too expensive. Nobody wants to spend £75,000 or £100,000 on a hydrogen car, which is basically a Ford Mondeo. People just aren't that interested. So if you're going to spend £100,000 on a car, you want a Ferrari. Um, but if that hydrogen car could be, instead of £100,000, it could be £10,000, it suddenly means that everyone would be able to drive one. And if everyone was able to drive hydrogen cars, we wouldn't need to use fossil fuels anymore. We wouldn't really have much of a need for petrol and diesel, which obviously is one of the main contributors to climate change and one of the main polluters on, on Earth. So it would be a major sort of benefit to, to climate change and to a major sort of prevention of climate change um, by being able to sort of introduce a, a large supply of platinum into, into the global economy. And by having sort of things like that, who knows what kind of scientific innovations and technical innovations that could come as a result of having a, a, a much larger and uh, more sustainable sort of supply of platinum group metals. Um, so that's one of the things that we're most most excited about. But I suppose the other thing that I'm, I'm excited about is the idea that if you're putting infrastructure in, in deep space and you're putting an economic incentive for going into deep space, then uh, ultimately you're going to get to a point where people are going to go and visit. People are going to go and like go to these asteroids and you're going to have some engineers who probably do six month stints on an asteroid much like we have scientists and engineers who go down to the South Pole at the minute. Um, and that's that's something which is very exciting. That's something which I think is ultimately going to be sort of one of the, the biggest contributions of, of space resources to, to mankind is that space resources, particularly sort of the extraction of water, should be 
one of the catalysts for human expansion and into space. And I think that could be sort of one of the greatest legacies and benefits of space resources in, in the long term. Yeah, exactly. Because they're talking about the water on series and things like that. And uh, asteroids like this, but if they become habitable, then it kind of, yeah, it could just change the way everything works entirely. But what, what are some of the biggest challenges you face then in terms of growing your business? And, and what do you think the biggest challenges you're going to face in the next few years are going to be? Um, I suppose one of the biggest challenges so far has been sort of obviously funding. Funding's always a challenge and any startup, I'm sure if you spoke to a hundred startup entrepreneurs, they would all say that funding's always a challenge. Um, especially when you're doing such a big project, um, it's always going to be sort of difficult. Um, and there's always projects which come along which we would want to, we'd want to pursue, we'd want to follow, um, but we don't always have the budget to, to do at that time. And then sometimes that means that sort of six months of the year down the line, that project just isn't available anymore, which can be um, missed opportunities, so it can be difficult. Um, but at the same time, that's not to say that funding is always going to be a challenge. Um, and I think that the further into the company and the further, the longer um, you can hold out as, as an entrepreneur, um, the more funding you get, the more sort of support. And the more understanding, the more knowledge you get within your sector, within your company, within your field, the more respect you get as a result of that as well. Um, so for example, I gave, a, I gave a lecture in May for the uh, University of Oxford um, and the doctoral training partnership there on asteroid mining. And things like that are, are really exciting because I go, well, that's, that's something I couldn't possibly have dreamed of five years ago when I was in university that's now very much possible to what's happened. So things like that are are like that's kind of where the where the real sort of the benefits come from and like in any in any startup in any sort of business the longer you can sort of sustain yourself for as long as you don't have massive overheads and you're not sort of hemorrhaging money if you can sort of keep your keep your balance sheet in a, in a relatively good position then and you can sustain yourself and live to a reasonable standard then you're there's no reason to, to not continue. So that's um, that's the way that we've always operated and that's something which is known as the lean startup where you basically cut all your costs to the barest minimum and just kind of focusing the projects, focusing on development. And um, that's the kind of, that's the model that we've always adopted and will continue to do for, for the foreseeable future. And then as we, as we begin to wrap up, what would you just recommend to somebody that's trying to get into space? Well, I would always like to say to particularly sort of young people, what, 14 to 18, maybe even as much as 20, that the space industry is not just for scientists and engineers. Um, I know many people in the space industry who don't have an engineering degree, they don't have a scientific degree. Um, their backgrounds can be philosophy, but they can be a, they can they can be in a position where they don't have to sort of they, they don't have that traditional background and that's um that's something which isn't talked about in the industry as often um usually when you see sort of careers in space it's like well scientist engineer scientist engineer stem background and that was one of the things that initially put me off when i was sort of looking to enter the space industry it's like oh there's no way i'll ever be able to join the space industry because i don't have that 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 stem background um and especially when you have to make a decision at 15 16 years old what your as levels and a levels are going to be you can feel like you can be shut out from sort of career paths at, at, at very early age and i'd just like to sort of express the point that that's not true like if you're really interested in the career in space then 
yeah, maths and science are always going to be fantastically beneficial. Um, but you could also work for a space company in the social media market. You could be in human resources. Um, you could do sort of business development. Um, you don't really always need to have that that sort of scientific background. If anything, a business development background or a business management background can be just as helpful, if not more helpful, um, and can put you in a, a good position. I suppose if you have sort of business management and um, or business management and sort of an engineering or scientific background, and that's kind of gold plated and what you probably would really, really aspire to have. But that's um, not everybody has that, and that's fine. We I always look at people on their merits and on their personalities, not so much on sort of where they went to university or sort of what their what certificates they have, because ultimately. I like to work with people that I like. I like to work with people who I trust and who I, I know are going to work hard and sort of are, are sold in the same vision. And if you have that kind of that passion for for work, if you have that passion for your projects, then you'll work twice as hard as someone who has a has a degree in the subject but doesn't really care. And that's something which I'm sort of I would always advocate for. Just be be passionate about it and you can always go back and sort of go to college afterwards and if you wanted to um, to upgrade your maths and I mean I, I, I got I think a B in GCSE maths maybe even a C I can't even remember um, so it's not like I, I have fantastic math skills so I, I think I got ABC in my in my typical award science um, I did get an A in physics though so I'm quite proud of that one but <laughs> at, um, at GCSEs like I, I wasn't sort of particularly scientifically aligned but um, I have considered going back and sort of doing my doing GCSEs, but um, it's one of them. It's not you don't really always need them. Um, it's sometimes just the case of being able to to position and put yourself in the right place at the right time. Yeah, exactly. It's all about kind of just yeah meeting people, expanding everyone you know, and then yeah putting yourself in opportunities where you're going to get offered the chance to work on something or get offered the chance to just get involved. So that's the other thing. What what opportunities would you say there are for people to get involved with? Well, one of, one of the things that we're looking for at the minute that's particularly aimed at 16 to 18 year olds is um, at the minute we're about to hopefully start putting on traineeship programmes. Um, so traineeship is kind of the step before an apprenticeship. Uh, ultimately, it's kind of um, something like, yeah, it's like work placement, but there's also kind of um, like work training um, and sort of skills training that's um, provided by sort of a government license provider as well. Um, so at the minute we're looking at taking on about 10 trainees over the next month or two um, in order to sort of have that um, essentially start that ball rolling and also sort of kind of connected to traineeship programmes as internship programmes which is kind of a step up. Um, so we, we run an annual summer internship um, where sort of we have interns doing various projects. It can be things like social media work. It can be sort of a bit of business development, or it can be sort of quite complex technical work, depending on sort of the skill sets and sort of knowledge of, of that particular year. Um, so I would always keep an eye out for things like that. Again, it never hurts to drop an email to to whoever and say um, I'm interested in any internship opportunities, traineeship opportunities, um, things like that. So I would always recommend that you just kind of you be proactive and especially if especially if you don't have that sort of stem background uh, the kind of the emphasis is on you to kind of make make the steps um but if, if you're willing to be proactive and get your name out there then there, there will be opportunities for you 
So I would always encourage, particularly for the traineeships, I would encourage anyone who's interested to uh, drop an email on the contact form at www.astoidmininggcorporation.co.uk um, and hopefully we can, uh, we can sort out some exciting traineeships and space resources as well. Yeah, that, that's all about kind of everything. I'm just interested in helping people realise that there are opportunities, especially as you said, not necessarily to do with STEM, so you don't need a STEM background to get into things. Although I'm kind of coming from that background, I think it's really important that people realise that they don't have to have that to get into space because space is just like a really interesting thing. And there's so many different avenues to get into it. And it's just putting yourself out there and asking people for opportunities, I think. Yeah, I would just sort of really emphasise the fact that um, obviously STEM's, STEM's great, but I, if, if anyone was listening to this and didn't have that STEM background and is wondering how am I going to how am I going to sort of get a job in the space industry it's my dream it's my passion but I sort of I maybe picked the wrong subjects when I was 16 or I've, I've picked the wrong university course and I did that I, I I picked the wrong subjects and the wrong university course to, to get a career in the space industry and I'm still here I'm, I'm being interviewed by you so um, I, I would just really like to emphasize that it's not impossible to get a job in the space industry and the space industry is growing and it's growing fast there's going to be thousands of jobs created in the space industry over the next 10 years so now is probably the best time it ever has been to get a job in the space industry and and now particularly sort of there's kind of two ways that you can approach it you can specialize very very particular but i've met people who specialize too far to the point where they're kind of they, they box themselves in to an area where they can't really go any further um, and that's not always the best thing so I would say kind of keep your keep your net open keep your arms open and just kind of take any opportunities that are thrown your way um, I mean what's the worst that can happen you spend a few months don't like it do something else what, what, what's the harm um, especially sort of when you're young you've got plenty of time to make mistakes and learn from them um, it's only when you sort of start staring down 30 that you start of have to start thinking things uh, a bit a bit clearer but even then I've, I've got what four or five years until I hit 30 so I've got plenty of time to make mistakes before I, I settle on what I ultimately want to be doing as well so yeah don't if anybody's listening and sort of is interested in a career in space um, I would have a look at careersinspace.co.uk I'd have a look at the UK SEDS website um, UK SEDS in particular are a lovely bunch of land by some excellent people they're really, really enthusiastic and really good at promoting sort of um, young people and getting jobs in space and really well connected as well and then you've also got the Space Generation Advisory Council for when you're a, sort of a step up and when you're kind of at university level um, at which point you can kind of start to look at sort of um, more professionalised um, sort of courses and you can start submitting abstracts to the um, and, and to like um, IEC and things like that so there, uh, there's definitely sort of great pathways and if you look at all these websites there's um there's lots and lots of resources that will help you sort of get get your foot in the door and yeah especially in the space industry we're really really keen to see young people we're really keen to sort of do that outreach to promote people to come and join the industry and to just to get on board and um, the space industry belongs to the to the young generation um it's, it's millennials and generation is it Z or Y I can't even remember these days that are, are going to be the ones who kind of populate um, the industry going forward so um, it's never been a better time to get involved it's, it's very much up to you to go and sort of do your research do your work and yeah be, do, there'll be a job waiting for you at some point 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's just yeah, finding out about the opportunities. But it's been yeah, it's been really interesting talking to you and finding about where you want your company to go and kind of how you started it all up. And if there's anybody that wants to follow that up further, where can they go to actually find out more about Asteroid Mining Corporation? So we have a, a Twitter account which is AMC LTD UK, I think. Um, we've got a Facebook page which is like Asteroid Mining Corporation Limited UK. Um, We've got a website, uk, um, and we do have an Instagram, um, which I think connected to my Instagram, but I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, we do have an Instagram now as well. Um, so yeah, we're kind of, we all know all, all the kind of usual social media channels. Um, I don't really like Twitter too much. I don't use it very often. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find someone to sort of do the Twitter for me. Um, so that's probably the one that we use the least. Also LinkedIn. Um, I would highly recommend LinkedIn for sort of young people. Um, it's it's a bit of a, a bit daunting at first, but give it sort of a couple of months, play about with it, and you you soon use it. You learn to use it. So it can be a very very useful tool for thinking about opportunities and connecting with interesting people. Um, so we're also on LinkedIn as well if anybody wants to connect with us there. Uh, but yeah, it's um, there's, there's various ways and means. I'll make sure to have all of those linked kind of in the show notes i guess you could call them for the episode and um, by the time this this episode goes up you'll be on your bike ride so best of luck with all of that um, thank you very much <laughs> and, yeah yeah and i'll link i'll link to the places where you can follow along with that as well for anybody that's interested with that but yeah no it's been really good to talk to you thanks for coming on oh my absolute pleasure thank you for having me thanks to mitch for coming on the podcast if you enjoyed listening then a review on your chosen podcast service would be amazing I'd love it if you could share this episode with your network. Perhaps the space industry excites someone you know, but they don't know how to break into it. Make sure to tag me afterwards at Jamie C. Rob. A quick reminder that the show notes for this episode will be linked below. If you do click through to the show notes, you'll find links to any resources mentioned today, as well as a form to sign up to our weekly newsletter. Finally, a reminder about the mastermind. If you want to improve your networking skills, space sector knowledge, and get access to a community of future space professionals, make sure to sign up at aerospaceforall.com forward slash mastermind. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.